we can still punch Nazis. Though, oh, right? for sure. Okay, yeah. okay, just making sure. That's okay. Yeah. We can just, that's just not the only thing we're sp- we should do. Right. That that <laughs> section of the book actually, <clears throat> I recently reread um, James McPherson's book about the Civil War, um, and and it struck me that that it, that it was maybe like a a pretty significant example of just exactly what you were talking about here in the Union War effort, where they were at the same time. Uh, attacking this hideously immoral institution of slavery uh, while revitalizing to a fantastic degree the uh, material economic institutions of the country. Um, You had the land-grant colleges that to this day are like some of the best universities in the world. Um, You had the Homestead Act, problematic, stolen from the Indians to like a lot of it. But, you know, it was a redistribution of wealth to some degree. Uh, You had a a huge reform of the banking system. You had um, an abolishment of the gold standard temporarily. Um, Massive infrastructure projects all over the place. Um, And so, you know, it it was uh, eventually, I think, a recognition of the fact that in order to achieve you know, this, this like political egalitarian Republican, small R Republican goal that they had set for themselves and large R Republican, actually, but now that I think about it back in them days, uh, they had to, you know, do both things at the same time. They had, they had to deal with the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, identity politics, uh, as it were, that wasn't called the back then of, of de- slavery and the, the prejudice against, uh, black people to some, you know, it was imperfect victory to be sure, but ma- major progress was made temporarily. Um, and at the same time, you know, revitalize the institutions of the country um, such that the the victory could actually be achieved. And that seems like s- sort of like a, a, a decent example of the type of, you know, collective project that you're talking about, right? A co- collective emancipation of like the, the whole country done in a pretty pragmatic way. Yeah. I think there's a lot of parallels of that period of the history, right? A lot of, um, a lot of African Americans went to go fight with the union army. It's not because those people weren't racist. Those people were, <laughs> Racist as hell, you know. Um, they dealt with constant discrimination at every level of service in the yep. Union Army war effort. But they also beat the Confederacy. And, you know, people kind of had their eyes on the prize there. And they didn't just stop at beating the Confederacy. Like you said, that whole effort involved huge, large-scale changes to the entire political, social, and economic um foundations of the whole country. But on top of that, after beating the Confederacy, there was a whole social level effort to reconfigure and dramatically reshape all of those institutions. And the years of reconstruction, that's that's the term for the historical period, the years of reconstruction that followed the end of the Civil War are some of the most progressive periods in the entire history of the United States because people who had been enslaved and, you know, the people who were their comrades, um, radical Republicans, um, as they, as they were then, 
we're we're fighting to reshape the entire basic social institutions. They were fighting for reparations. They were fighting for um, the right to hold political office and vote. They were fighting to end exclusions over you know, racially stratified exclusions over who could own property and what the terms of work could be, all those sorts of things. So they were fighting to build something, um, and they did build uh, many things. And if it weren't for a huge wave of reactionary violence, um, that those projects would have succeeded. Yeah, that, that seems right. I mean, we're hoping for a new reconstruction that actually works, right? And, and we are, of course, seeing the reactionary backlash even ahead of <laughs> the emancipatory move, which is, you know, a preemptive strike from the right. Uh, this, this is kind of the weirdness with the woke stuff. It, you know, if you go by like Corey Robbins' reactionary mind, usually it's, it's the actual emancipatory power of the left that gets reacted to that, that mobilizes the right. But now it's this weird thing where like, wokeness that that term itself or like pretends critical race theory not even real critical race theory mobilizes massive reaction and, and that actually changes laws that abrogate the first amendment it's crazy right um so so we should have you back on by the way for reconsidering reparations because that, that's <laughs> that's awesome but but can you can maybe tease that because i think it's good that you brought that up as part of the constructive politics like what what is what is um Reconstruction and a new kind of view of what reparations today would mean. Uh, what would that look like to combat these reactionary forces? Like, what maybe tease a little bit the connection between your two books for us, if you don't mind. So, I think regardless, um, it would look like again um, in the high level abstract version, changing the fundamental conditions of social and political life concretely. I think that comes down to distributions, distributions of economic power and distributions of political power. Clear way to redistribute political or sorry, economic power is cash money. <laughs> right? I, you know, we know it, we love it. We know Tried it, and we true. love it, fuck <laughs> the dumb shit, give people money, right? Um yeah. unconditional yeah. cash transfers, there's a mountain of research at this point. Um, just do it. Yeah, the ivory tower endorses the helicopter money. Just like, <laughs> give the money. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's a variety of ways it could be packaged. Uh, Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen have one, um, have one model that's, uh, kind of trust fund based and it would have a, a board to do some administering over it. Uh, Dorian Warren over at the Economic Security Project talks about a universal basic income. Um, um, but a universal basic income plus with an additional amount for African-American descendants of slavery. Um, Darity and Mullins is targeted directly at African-American descendants of slavery. But like that's – those are the things, you know, to me that's step one. If you do nothing else, do that. Um, but I think decision-making power is also a thing to redistribute. It's not – an accident that the dollars ended up in the bank accounts that they ended up in, right? It has to do with who gets to decide how the dollars get made, right? Um, and where they go afterwards. So there's a variety of things you could do to shift 
political power and decision making away from the kind of bot elites who can be lobbied and blah blah to yeah. regular folks. Um, this would be especially powerful if done at the community level, and then it could be targeted towards people who are, uh, you know, the racialized working class, um, black and indigenous folks in particular. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, community control over stuff. What yeah. stuff? All the stuff the Black Panthers were talking about in the 70s. Land, housing, education, energy. Right. Right. Um, in an era of climate crisis, I might put a little asterisk by energy. That seems important. Um, but in general, uh, community-level decision-making, there's a lot of ways you could operationalize that. Maybe we uh, have uh, citizens' assemblies make the laws. Um, maybe we allow the state legislatures to make the laws, but we have uh, participatory budgeting. And so yeah. the dollars get divvied up by something like a town hall format, but um, the money and power are the basic. Yeah. Democratize power and de- democratize the economy, yeah. democratize control. Yeah. All these. Me- if I may, why? Because I think this is something that people really don't know much about. Why is the deferential politics that come from standpoint epistemology not helpful in achieving all of those great things? Like, what what is the what is lacking there? Because we have a lim- limited amount of time, and we have to pick our strategies, right? Well, I, I think people might not get what the problem is because it seems so helpful. Uh, we've talked a little bit about changing people's minds is not enough, but like, uh, you know. Look, every institution now in higher education has a diversity, uh, uh, equity and inclusion, um, you know, committee. And, and, uh, Angela Davis once said, I don't want to be included in an empire, you know, that, but like, you know, that, that there's, there's, there's reasons why it's not enough to, to, to do these kind of things. But maybe you could talk a bit about what you wrote about in Elite Capture, uh, about why what you just described isn't necessarily something we can get so easily through that path. Yeah. So. To start off with an act of deference, right? Sometimes, some days, some situations, you know, maybe the thing to do is to look around and say, you know, who thinks likely, who looks like they might know the answer to this question? Or, or who do I feel like I should take direction from on this occasion? And that is often, you know, the very smart thing to do. Sometimes it's the only thing to do. Um, acts of deference are fine. Um, but you might take that thing that you might do in a given conversation or action or something and say, that's my, you know, that's my plan A. That is my general approach to politics. I'm going to have the opinions, support the causes, um, articulate the analysis that a person or people from this or that marginalized group tell me to do. And I think that gets a lot wrong. Um, but I think the quickest way into my set of beefs with that way of thinking and acting come from, you know, just a few guesses about how that's going to go. Right? It's not as though, you know, we spin a lotto wheel and pick out a marginalized person and interact with that person, right? Who do you interact with? You interact with the particular people that you encounter, which is highly not random. 
You interact with you interact with the people at your job. You interact, you know, in my case, with people um, who have gone through a literal admissions process, right? Um, a weighing of things that decide whether or not they were going to get to be in rooms like university classrooms, right? A society, an aspect of society sat down and said, these people get to do it and those people don't. And much more of society is implicitly like that than we think sometimes. You know, there's certain kinds of experiences you're likely to find first-person accounts of if you're in a prison, and there are certain kinds of experiences you're likely to have access to first-person accounts of if you're in the boardroom of Bain Capital. <laughs> and we know all this. So, you know, all we have to do is think, if my approach to deference is to just start off with wherever I happen to be, whoever's opinions I happen to ha have access to, and then find the marginalized people within that, and then defer to them, which marginalized people is it likely to be? All right. It's probably Joy Reid. Let's keep it a buck, right? So, you know, that yeah. I don't think... That that is, is she, a model. Is she poor? Remind us, Femi. Is she poor? Because I'm trying to do the intersectional <laughs> analysis. Is I don't. Know. I don't know her background, but I imagine she's doing well now. Okay, I right? just wondered. <laughs> you know, um, MSNBC does have a good number of viewers. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so you know, it's a procedure. It's a way of relating to the world that kind of bakes in a ton of inequalities. And then at the final stage, when you're looking around the room you happen to be in, then says, I'm going to pay attention to marginalization now. And um, I just don't, I don't think much of that as a practice, even for the question of what should I say in this room or this particular conversation. Um, but much more importantly, that just strikes me as the wrong question, like fundamentally. It's not about how do we interact in these particular circumstances. You know how to interact. You're an adult. Don't be Say a hello. Don't be an asshole. Right. right? Don't be a and, dick. And That's do right. your best, you know, like listen to what other people are saying yeah. and be honest, all that good shit, right? Um, you know, the hard part isn't. How do I make it unscathed out of this conversation? The hard part is, how do I make it unscathed out of this, you know, contentious interaction with the police? And, you know, that's the hard part. And that's the part you might need organization and uh, people power and all those kinds of things to deal with. And you are not you know, uh, anti-racist book list away from getting those things. Even if it's my book, sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of the preview, folks. As usual, we like to mention that this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect magazine. So if you want to listen to the whole thing, uh, you could subscribe at $5 a month. If you want that plus a free subscription to the website, uh, plus the opportunity for a steeply discounted print subscription. You can do that if you so wish 
at $10 a month. And uh, otherwise, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.